Welcome to PR360, a weekly interview podcast dedicated to talking about the important topics within the public relations technology industry, hosted by Brett Deister and in partnership with Global Results Communication. Find out more information at globalresultspr.com. Welcome to PR360, a podcast where we talk to the best minds in the PR tech industry. And I'm your host, Brett Deister. And with me is Chad McLeod. And he is the newest member of the Lakeland City Commission. And he was elected in the end of 2019 and is the at-large number two seat. He's also the owner of McLeod Communications and a PR communication firm based in downtown Lakeland. He specializes in communication strategy, media relation, issues management, and more. He's also a co-host of PR and politics. So we got another podcaster here. So welcome to the show, Chad. Thank you, Brett. It's great to be here today. Yes. And the one thing I asked all my interviewees is, are you a coffee or tea drinker? When I got the list of possible questions, I have to admit, and I saw this one, I was not expecting this as the first question, but I love it. I think it's great. Definitely a coffee drinker. And I love your digital coffee mug that I'm seeing right now as we do this interview. I start the morning off. I have, as I mentioned, we were talking before we started the show. I have three kids under the age of seven. So coffee is pretty much constantly flowing at our house, especially now as my wife and I are both working from home and doing school from home with the kids. So definitely a coffee drinker in the mornings, the afternoons, sometimes in the evenings too. No, oh, yes. Usually about three cups, but that's usually in the morning when I stop. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's like a waking up process, mostly with coffee for me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm right there with you. Occasionally tea, but for the most part, it's, it's coffee for me. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to run for office? What was your intrinsic need to do this? That's a great question. And that's one that I got a lot when I was campaigning. Why would you want to do this? Why would you want to get involved in politics, in local government? And I've been interested in the political process and really all levels of government for a long time. As you mentioned, my brother and I have a podcast called PR and Politics. And when I graduated from college, I went to the University of Florida, Go Gators. I graduated in 2004. And then I had the opportunity to go to work for a United States senator from Florida who had just been elected. And it was my first job out of college. I was a PR major and I was green. I was interested in politics, but really didn't know what I didn't know. And I worked for him for about five years. And it was just a fascinating front row seat at the political process, at political communications. I learned a lot. And I left that experience having seen the good, the bad, the ugly of the political process, but at the same time, still very interested and thought one day I would like to serve if the opportunity is there, if the timing is right, if it works for me and my family. And so that desire and interest have always been there for me. And then specifically to the city of Lakeland. So we are a city of about 100,000 people in the city limits. And we're in between right in the middle of Tampa and Orlando. So right along I-4, you've been to Disney World and the beaches of Tampa Bay. We're right in the middle of that in position between those larger markets. And Lakeland is really growing like a lot of regions in the state of Florida. Just tremendous population growth, a lot of economic opportunities that have been happening over the past couple of years. And we had a commissioner who was leaving office. He was term limited. There was going to be an open seat and a change on the commission. And I just, I started talking to people in town and expressing a desire to 
pursue the seat, wanted to see if there was an opportunity for a business owner like me to come in and, and potentially win. And the more I talked to people, the more excited I got about being part of Lakeland's leadership during the next few years. Now, at the time, we did not foresee where we would be right now and just everything that's going on this year. But it seemed like a great time to come in as a new commissioner. I also am the only commissioner currently who's under 40. And so I thought we have a lot of young families, a lot of people who are in the same stage of life that my wife and I are in, and it would be great to represent them on city government. I'm 38, so I was born in 1982, and I joke that I'm kind of an old millennial. I'm right on the the cusp of the millennial generation, but I thought it would be great to have that perspective on our commission. And so I kind of just threw all of that together and decided that it was a right time for me to run. No, I'm right there with you. I'm a part of the old millennial generation too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only a few years younger than you, so it's, I'm not that far behind. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because sometimes I don't, I don't know if you feel this way, but I don't necessarily feel like a millennial or when I read things about connecting with the millennial generation, sometimes it applies, sometimes it doesn't, but technically I am part of that generation. And I do see some of the discussions that we have on the commission where we're talking about young professionals making Lakeland a place that we can compete with other cities around the state of Florida and bring some of our young talent back. So students who have gone off to college or gone out of state for school, and how do we make this town a place that is appealing to that generation? And so that's something that I hope that I've been able to provide that perspective. Oh, no. Yeah, I agree with you. I think a lot of times I don't really agree with my generation. I'm like, what? Uh, Okay, I guess I'm a part of this, but not really a part of this. Yeah. (laughs) So whatever. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I feel you on that. Always good to get younger people involved with politics because the old generation eventually kind of gets out of touch with us. Well, and it, it was fun to see during the campaign a lot of younger people getting involved and wanting to work on the campaign or just having an interest in local government, civic engagement, who maybe otherwise wouldn't. And I, I think we saw some of that. And so that was encouraging. It was fun. And I hope to see that even more now that I'm in office, just to have people who in this stage of life, things are busy a lot of times with kids and people pursuing careers and, and climbing that career ladder. But I just try to remind people how important it is to be connected and plugged into what's going on at all levels of government. But at the local level, it's things that affect your everyday life from roads and transportation and school and different policy decisions that affect every resident in your city. Can you just give us a little bit more about your responsibilities yeah. and what your role is for being a city commissioner? Yeah, I compare it to being on the board, being part of a board of directors for a large organization. And we are the policymaking body for the city. And so we make decisions about zoning and different land use ordinances. The city's budget, we have about a $600 million a year budget. We're very involved in approving that and setting the strategy and the vision for the city of Lakeland. Our system of government is set up so we have a city manager who is uh, reports to the city commission and that city manager acts as your CEO, if you will. And so we are, for the board, he reports to us. He is responsible for executing the day-to-day strategy and vision that the city commission sets. All right. Sounds like a lot of responsibility, what I'm hearing. So it's, it's my new part full-time job is what I tell people because it is designed, it can be as, time-consuming as you make it. And we have, that varies on the commission. We have some who are 
for the most part, retired and they're at City Hall a lot. We have others who still have uh, full-time jobs outside of being a commissioner. And, and so there's that balance, but, but it is very involved. There's a lot that comes along with it. I love it. I love the issues. I love the topics that we're dealing with, the challenges. It can be complex and, and you're trying to balance a lot of interest all the time. And so that makes it challenging, but I really enjoy the work. So for me, many times it doesn't feel like work. And I think that's what makes it exciting. And it's something that I can do while I'm, as you mentioned, still running a PR firm and doing another podcast as well. And speaking of just politics and communication strategy, what is kind of the process of writing a crisis plan? I mean, obviously you can't figure out all crises, but how do you go about like figuring out what are like your top three or top five crises and writing that plan? Yeah, that's a great question. And when we work with clients on this, we like to get an organization's leadership in the room and talk about what are some scenarios that would keep you up at night? What are likely crises for this organization, depending on your industry, depending on what you're in? What are some unlikely crises, but would be very devastating or potentially devastating to your brand, to your reputation? And start to brainstorm those and talk through some of those scenarios. And that's always an interesting exercise because a lot of times what we found is it's critically important, but organizations are busy. Things are going on. And so just getting everyone in a room to talk through that many times has not happened in the past before we work with a client on this. And so it's eye-opening for a leadership team to have some of these discussions. Sometimes you'll see things identified and light bulbs going off. People saying, oh, that's true. We didn't think about that. Or that's something we really, while it may not have a, a high likelihood of happening, but if it did, this would be horrible for our organization, for our stakeholders, our customers. And so we start from there when developing a crisis communications plan and then start to put in some specifics of, okay, so how do we respond to this? What is the crisis response? And then from there, what is the crisis communications effort look like? And start to get into specifics and build out a plan from there. Mm -hmm. And when you're creating the crisis plan, what officials or agencies do you collaborate with that in hopes of a crisis happen, they're all set and understand what their yeah. role is. Yeah, it depends on the organization and what type of industry you're in, who are your stakeholders, who are people who are going to be part of that messaging plan. Are there people who need to receive the message sooner than others, maybe? Or are there people who we need them on the same page from the beginning? So all of that certainly comes into play. If I think of something like a city or county government, there are a lot of entities involved in in a potential crisis. And so if you have a, a city, for example, we have seven commissioners, including a mayor. And so we are all considered important stakeholders. If there's a message that's coming out from the city of Lakeland, it's important that we're all on the same page, that we know what that message is, because any of us can be spokespersons for the city. Now we have a communications director who's on staff and does a lot of the media requests, but as elected officials and being in the PR business, you know that reporters don't always just follow that that chain. They don't go straight to the comms director. They want to talk to the policymakers. And so we, as being elected, we have the ability to pick and choose. Do we want to do media interviews? And I think it's just critical that that we're on the same page, that we know what's going on within the city, that we have access to the latest information. There are a lot of moving parts. And so for government, a lot of times it is, it's complex. And I think it makes it a lot easier if we have thought through 
some of these scenarios and who are, as you mentioned, the officials, the agencies who need to be part of that process. If we've done that ahead of time, we're in a stronger position than if we're trying to do it on the fly, for sure. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the press, do you guys have like a spreadsheet or a document of all the press that key players that you wanted to communicate first? Or do you actually delineate between that as well? Yeah, that's a great question. We do have, as a city, a media distribution list of our local media. A lot of times as policymakers, as the commission, we likely get a heads up that this is going out, this is going to the media, so we're not getting a first look as soon as the media gets it. But it's it's quick. Sometimes the time between notifying your most important stakeholders, in this case us as commissioners, there may not be a lot of time in between that step and then and notifying the media. And I think that's important as things move so fast. And anytime you disseminate information, there's a chance that it gets to the media through someone else. I like to see when we can, as a city, get information to our local media as quickly as possible as things are happening. And they're definitely a big part of telling our story and getting our side and our message out, especially in what we're in right now in response to the coronavirus and, and different changes and closures and things that we've had happening on a local level, while we have our own channels, like everybody else, that we can send out information through, uh, the, the press has been incredibly helpful over the past few weeks. And do you actually write your own press releases and other materials already pre-written and you just have to fill in some blanks? Because that's usually what I do is I do a, a mock press release and then change it on the fly if I actually need to. Similar things to that as well? Yeah, I do. For a lot of the clients we work with, we do. We have templates and language that they can use and hopefully just tailor to a situation or just make the process easier and faster. So it's interesting for me as a commissioner because I, you know, I mentioned we have a communications director and a whole team of comm staff, and they do a great job. I am a commissioner who is in the public relations business. I'm a PR guy. So I have a lot of thoughts and I try not to meddle in their operation too much. If I'm going to meddle in an area, I always joke with them, this is going to be it. So they're stuck with me at least for four years to uh, to comment on some of the things they're doing or, or say, hey, have you thought about this? And most of the time they have, and they're very gracious in allowing me to step in and, and give some advice from time to time on, hey, if, if the city of Lakeland were my client, here's what I would recommend. And they work with me on that for sure. All right. And speaking of different generations, do you guys try to use different mediums? Because each generation gets their news from different mediums. For example, probably the baby boomers still get it from the TV. Gen Xers are probably split between TV, newspaper, and actually online. Millennials are more online. And then Gen Z is way more online than millennials are. We do. I think if you look at, and a lot of cities, I would guess, are in this position. But over the past five years, the amount of emphasis we have put on communicating well online, having our digital platforms up to speed, but at the same time, not neglecting other forms of communication. And we had to remind ourselves, even this week, that we have a lot of residents who may not be following the city of Lakeland on Facebook. They're not on Instagram. They're not online. How do we reach those segments of our city and making sure that we are looking at other tools and whatever that may be, if there are grassroots methods that we can use, if there are neighborhood associations or other ways that word of mouth is very popular or residents who get their information from certain groups within their community, that we make sure they're part of that process as well. So 
Yeah, to answer your question, I think we really try to make sure that we're covering all of those areas where people are getting their information, depending on their generation or just how they prefer to consume news. Of course, that makes it all the more challenging for a communications shop because that means there's more to do. There are more responsibilities. There are more platforms to update. But overall, I think our city is, is doing a solid job on that. Mm-hmm. And even speaking about that, it seems like with more platforms means the crisis plan gets a lot bigger. So that actually means content collateral is now probably part of that where you actually have at least a template for each one of the social media sites that you're actually on. Do you guys factor that in as well? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right, it does. It means that with more platforms, there there are more things to update and to make sure we haven't forgotten a message here. And so that is part of the equation. In terms of, I don't know if our city, I'll make a note, Brett, to check with our city comms team. and Do we have different templates in terms of the content, some of our graphics and things that we're using that makes it easier to launch something, to get it live very fast? We have some talented in-house designers and folks who are, who are part of the comms team. And I think that's an asset. I think it's needed. As a PR guy, I always advocate for more resources and staff in that area. But I understand that's sometimes challenging in an organization. You don't, Maybe they're not in a position to hire more people. But as you mentioned, it takes time. It takes dedicated effort to make sure that you have messages across all of these platforms. Granted, yeah, you could also use like tools like Canva has a pretty good way of creating quick templates at least. Right. Yeah. And I think, I know we as a shop and advising clients encourage them to use those types of tools that somebody, maybe you have a very small staff or maybe it's just one person at a small organization and they're the press secretary, the graphic designer, the speech writer all in one. And oftentimes we'll try to point clients to tools that just make their life easier or help them get set up and have all of that in place when times are hopefully calmer than when they're in the middle of a crisis. Oh yeah, I've been there. It's not fun when you're the only person doing, you're the marketing manager of yourself. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's hard. And I think there are a fair number of PR practitioners in, at least in the markets that we work in and, and we're involved, heavily involved in the Florida Public Relations Association. So I have a lot of colleagues who, do a lot for their companies. They're a small team or even a one-man band, as you said, and that's, it means trying to be resourceful, finding tools that make your job easier. Going back to more of the generational thing, do you guys actually do different spokesperson or influencers, as you call it, for different generations? Because each different generation listens to somebody else that's not particularly one person. Do you guys factor that in or it's just one person mainly? When I think of the city of Lakeland, I can't pinpoint where we have been that granular with spokespersons to have different people for different generations. Now, we have done some different content pieces, maybe without even realizing that's what was we were doing, but we've had different people from within the city on video or talking about a particular topic and just whoever is a natural fit for that or maybe thinking about that audience. I was thinking about just that, as you mentioned that question, on our podcast, PR and Politics, and that's, I host that with my brother, Joe, who's also, he's my business partner and in the PR field. And he wrote a article this week for PR Daily about Dr. Fauci and about communication lessons from him and just having watched him as he's been 
one of two chief medical spokespersons for the coronavirus crisis. And, and Joe talks about how Dr. Fauci has been, while he's part of an older generation, he's been an effective spokesperson to a younger audience and why that is and how he's, he's candid. He's seen as authentic. He's credible. He, he doesn't shy away from hard facts. And Joe really walks through that. It's on PRDaily.com. And so I think an effective spokesperson can work across generations. Having said that, if there's an opportunity for an organization to use an influencer or use someone from within a generation because you feel like it would make the message resonate more, then I think that's something to, to consider for sure. Yeah, it's almost like more ideals that you seem to talk about with Dr. Fauci, ideals or at least traits that he has that is cross-generational. Yeah, I think so. I think, and so that, it, it goes back to just the, the importance of having someone who is an effective spokesperson and, and who is that? Who A lot of times, and I, I know if you look at a, an organization like the city of Lakeland, we may have one or two people in that role just to have, especially in a crisis, you have a command of the issue or have enough knowledge to be able to speak fluently about it, to answer questions, to be able to address concerns. And so sometimes that limits just the pool of people who can serve as, as spokesperson. But I do think if you have a larger audience or maybe you have an audience who there is made up of a, a large percentage in a certain generation that it's worth looking at to see, should we have someone for that generation who could connect a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And moving on to more like social media live services, how has this been a part of the new overall crisis strategy? Because I'm pretty sure before it's kind of like live services, eh, you don't really need to use them. But now it seems like churches are using them. Everybody's using them because they're yeah. an easy way to get out your message. Right. That's been fascinating to watch the organizational response of moving things online, of doing as you mentioned, live church services, live meetings, and really utilizing technology that's already been there. But for a lot of groups, it wasn't part of their daily rhythm or their operations. And so I think that transformation, it will be interesting to see post-coronavirus what stays in place or how organizations use some of the same things that they did as it relates to live and social media that they're doing right now. I think for, as I look at government and specifically the city that I represent, we were doing a fair amount with live technology and, and on social as it relates to different meetings, different city commission meetings, but not to the level we are right now because all of our meetings now are done virtually. So you've got seven commissioners plus city staff all calling in and that is being broadcast live on the city's website, also on social media. And so it just, it magnifies that effort. There's really, for me, an appreciation for the people behind that. So whether it's someone in, in IT, your communications department, it does take quite an effort to pull that off and to make it successful. And so that, the demand for that, that skill, I think is only going to increase as you look at you know, PR professionals, communications professionals, the importance of being skillful and up to speed as it relates to technology and live streaming and, and being able to pull that off. If you're a one-man show or just a small team, um, I only see that getting more important. Mm, I haven't seen too many businesses actually use LinkedIn Live. It seems like LinkedIn Live no one knows about quite yet. Everybody uses Facebook Live, but no one uses LinkedIn Live to the 
to the benefit of a lot of organizations. Do you think with doing crisis plans or just even doing communication plans in general, there should be like more of an overall strategy on using LinkedIn Live? I mean, it's there. Yeah, it's there. I don't, that is a good question. I'd love to hear, because you mentioned that, why do you think organizations aren't utilizing LinkedIn Live or even know that it's available? I don't know. I have some thoughts on it. But I'm just curious, since you brought it up, what your take is. And it is, it's available. And so it does pose the question, should we, should we be using it? Should it be a tool that is a part of the toolbox for a crisis response? I think for me, a lot of businesses don't know that there are tools out there to simulcast to different social media sites in one program. Like, for example, Restream yeah. is a good site that actually does that. It actually does start off more in gaming, but it does Facebook, it does Periscope, it does LinkedIn Live, it does Twitch, it does Mixer, it does all of them or most of the popular ones. And I don't think a lot of businesses understand that part about it because in live, yeah, yeah, if you're just doing it one by one, that's a lot of hours being put into it. But if you can simulcast, right. it's not that expensive. You can even get a free account too to just all of them or all the important ones that you want to do. It's actually not that bad, but I don't think a lot of businesses actually know about yeah. tools you can simulcast to all the sites and not have to do three different casts. Yeah, I, I was thinking along a, a similar line of that one, it potentially is it's more to manage. It's more to make sure that this is the feed is working, that it's going right. And so if if an organization is going to go live somewhere, pick and you're concerned about that, I do recommend pick one or two and make sure it's done well if you have concerns about the ability to manage another live stream or to do it all well. But you make a good point about there's technology that can minimize the effort that is involved. When I was thinking about LinkedIn, I was just thinking about how it's used and how people consume news. And I think a lot of times, and I'm just thinking of me personally, the way I use LinkedIn, it's just different than how I would use Twitter or Facebook or even Instagram. And so I'm not always there looking for live feeds. Now, maybe if people were using that more, that would change the way I would interact with LinkedIn. So I just wonder if the nature of the platform is a little bit different, although I do see more news and things coming out of it and think that has changed over uh, the past few years. So that, that will be something to keep an eye on. Does LinkedIn Live develop? Does it grow? Yeah, I think for a lot of businesses don't understand is that LinkedIn actually has the best organic reach out of all of them right now. You actually will get better reach yeah. from LinkedIn because they don't yeah. always rely on the feed ads because they have different ways of getting income. So they don't have to rely on the feed ads like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, which is owned by Facebook anyways, rely on. So they always rely on that, even though it's actually a great time to actually advertise on Facebook right now. Yeah, right. Yeah, they still rely on that. So you don't get as much traction from those as you would from LinkedIn. Because I know some people that I follow, I'll get a notification that they're live right now. And I can look at it if I want to or not. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's something to think about. I think a lot of businesses just don't understand LinkedIn still very well. And LinkedIn has been doing, yeah. I think in the past few months, they've been actually focusing more on the organization side of their business pages because their business pages for a while have been. Yeah, right. I have a business page. I can post things. but. They've been getting more and more about yeah, right. allowing businesses to post live, allowing businesses to do other collateral or content as well. So I think right. <laughs> the message isn't really out there yet. And LinkedIn doesn't do the best job of letting us know what you can and can't do. So it's kind of a communication thing on them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. If anyone from LinkedIn is listening, and I always say on our podcast, if you 
you want my thoughts on it, and if I can help you, give me a call. But th- I'm sure they have people who are looking at that and saying, hey, we could do a better job of communicating what's available and how it's potentially more valuable than some of the other platforms. And I know for us, for our firm, we're trying to do more with LinkedIn lately and just looking at its potential. In years past, it has been a bit of a challenge to try and figure out, okay, we've got this business page, what do we do with it? And how do we keep it in front of people? How do we grow it and organically versus paid and all of it, that that goes into it. But it will be in a year or two, I'll be curious to see where things are with LinkedIn and its growth and users and how businesses are using it. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's owned by Microsoft, so Microsoft does believe in it. Interesting to see if they'll actually will use Mixer, which is a live streaming gaming site. So they own that too, how they'll integrate more of their protocols into LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's ever-changing. I think that's the thing that it just, as soon as you, and I know for a lot of organizations, as soon as you get comfortable with something, a format, the way it works, then then it changes. I mean, I research this a lot, but I'm pretty sure a lot of other individuals don't have the time to research all this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's how they can call you, Brett, and say, can you help us with this? Yeah. Yeah. And then going on to podcasting, since we both are podcasters, yeah. do you think it's going to be another avenue for, let's say, the government to actually use this during crisis, or not even during a crisis, but just in general, to actually lean more in this way of communicating with people through audio? I do, and I hope so. I think, and you've probably seen this as well, the ability to be able to produce a podcast and how that has changed over the past few years and become, it's much easier for someone to start their own podcast. And you and I were talking before this show. I don't say that to say that it's easy to create, produce, and maintain one, but the tools are there. The tools are at your disposal. It is a commitment. It does take time to manage it, to keep it going, to find guests and edit interviews. And it's just, it's a full workload. But for companies, government organizations, I think it's a valuable tool. I think it's another way to communicate with your audience. It's a different medium. It offers you a chance. I started one, so I podcasted during my campaign. And I did about eight episodes toward the the last two months of the campaign. And it was just a at the time, there weren't a lot of political campaigns that I could find that were using podcasts. But I thought, well, for me, I, I'm already set up. I'm doing PR and politics. I can easily just spin off of that one and create a campaign podcast. It was a chance for me to talk about different issues, explain the why behind policy positions. Sometimes that would be hard to do at a candidate forum or a debate where you're limited to 90 seconds. And so if I went somewhere and I spoke and I had a limited time to give an answer, I could go to the podcast and follow up on that. And I could tell people in the audience, I'm going to be podcasting on this this week. Be sure to check it out. I'll explain more. And I I felt like that was a valuable tool. And I think it does offer the same for companies, for nonprofit, government, private sector, just to to be able to continue to communicate with your audience and give them a little bit of a, a different look than they will get anywhere else. So maybe I'm biased because. I'm a podcaster and I love it, but I do think it's a great opportunity. And I encourage clients and organizations, if they can and feel like they have the resources to dedicate to it, to give it a try. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I saw somebody on my Facebook saying, Hey, we want to start up a podcast. And I almost want to be like, eh, should I reply <laughs> right. to them, tell them that it's actually 
there's a lot of time yeah. that goes into this. It's not as easy as what people think it is. Yeah. That's the problem is that people think it's actually really easy. Like I just press record. It's like, well, there's a little bit more into that than just right. pressing the record button. Right. That is a small component, I would say, is the, the recording and getting the audio. <laughs> there's so much else. Now, the more that, that you do it, I think the easier it becomes and the faster people become at editing and just the process. But early on, it is a fair amount of, of time and commitment and even to sustain it, to, to make it different as you go along and appealing to your audience, all of that. It's not something that you, in my opinion, can just put on autopilot, that you're constantly working on refining and spending time on. No, because audio can be tricky and you can have really great audio. It sounds in your headphones and all of a sudden you're like, how, how did this happen? Yeah, we have run into that with interviews, especially sometimes we've done with guests and it sounds great in the headphones and then we get it back and something is not right. And there's a debate of, do we go with the audio being less than ideal or is it just better to hold it? And do So all of those discussions certainly come into play. And you realize things as you go along that you didn't know that, oh, this could potentially be an issue and I didn't know that. And so it's, it's like any other thing that's new in, in that regard. And then about podcasting, do you think, at least during a crisis or during a crisis plan, that podcasting can be the new fireside chats? Right. <laughs> For our listeners that don't understand what fireside chats is, FDR in World War II was on the radio talking about updates on the radio and everybody would sit around like the fireplace and listen, yeah. just so a little history for everybody. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you saying that because when you mentioned fireside chats, a lot of people know what that is, but there's some who who would not. And yeah, I think it is. It follows that format of what you described of FDR and the radio and the ability to have a conversation with people, whether they're in their living room, commuting to and from work, at the gym, and have headphones on, walking, and it's different as a medium than others, I think, because of that, because there's a chance to, it, it's as if you are, you're trying to, to have a conversation with your listeners. And so if you have a, an existing podcast, I think it's a great tool during a crisis because your content, you can tailor it. You're already set up to be able to, to speak to your audience. I think it would be incredibly challenging to spool up a new podcast in the middle of a crisis. I'm not sure I would recommend that. But I do think it's a very valuable tool for organizations that have them and should be part of your planning. As you talk about crisis planning, your most important ways to reach your audience, I think a, in 2020, I think a podcast should certainly be part of that discussion. Mm -hmm. And what other forms of digital communication have you found that it's effective when communicating to constituents? That's a great question. We have in the city of Lakeland, Facebook is still the most prominent social media site, I would say, that we have among our residents who are active on, on social media. And so we were mindful of that with our messaging, with just looking at the number of followers we have. But the other platforms are growing. And so we have tried to invest in others as well and make sure that we're consistent in the content that we put out on other sites. I still think email has a lot of value in today's world as you're talking about crisis messaging, I encourage people not to forget about email because if you have a good email list, you can reach people very quickly with your own message. And yes, there, we get a lot of email, 
But there's also a lot of noise, as we know, on social media. So I think email is one just people should not forget about potentially the value of a well-done, a well-written email in, in times of crisis. I mean, I just before this said about pod news and how I check my email for that specifically. Yeah, right. So there <laughs> are ways of getting people to just check it, but it's more of a choice of getting them to check it. Yes. Yeah, and certainly that's the challenge of making sure that it's received, that it's open, that people, and and there's that side of it. But I was talking to a group of small business owners yesterday, just giving an update on the city's response to the coronavirus and what we were doing. And somebody asked about how do you, you know, what's the best way to communicate with the commission? And I said, well, believe it or not, I think email is one of the best ways. And some of them were a little surprised. Like, really, and in 2020, is it email? You're telling me that? And I said, well, Yes, I get a lot of emails as a commissioner, but I read every single one of them. I know that if you emailed me, there's something that it's different than if I'm just reading through comments on our city's Facebook page. That if someone is, dear Commissioner McLeod, carries a little bit of weight or different importance. And so I just, I wanted to remind that group and others that email is still relevant in, in today's world. Well, the thing is more email. You took the time to email somebody because comments are easy to do through your phone. Yeah. But emails, it's like you're thinking about what right. you're writing most of the time. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. And going on with more misinformation, how do you combat that? Because I know a lot of social networks and everything, but how do you combat that as a city government yourself on like what is the credible sources and what are not the credible sources? Great question. As a city here in Lakeland, I know we've tried to do a couple of things. One, it's important that you have people who are monitoring and listening to the information that's out there so you can spot misinformation. And when, when you do, being in a position to respond to it. We've done a couple of posts and messages around different rumors that about what's open or closed in the city. And so you're just doing very specific messaging on rumor control, here's the latest on this. It, I think it's important, too, to be communicating consistently and frequently during a crisis. And so people, if they're already in a rhythm of hearing from an organization with regular updates, then it's, hopefully they, they are staying in tune with what you as a credible organization are putting out. And it's an opportunity to say, hey, here's something we've heard. Here's a rumor. This isn't true. Or maybe it is. And here's why. So I think that is definitely important. Sometimes, however, I do think there are opportunities to almost have a mini campaign, if you will, within a, a crisis response. If there's some sort of rumor or misinformation that is out there, we had a couple of weeks ago, maybe it's a couple of months ago. Now, I feel like the days are running together with everything that we've been dealing with on the on local level, but before the coronavirus crisis. There was uh, a rumor that the city, we, we have a city-owned golf course, and there were some rumors that we as a commission were considering selling part of the golf course and some other city-owned properties. And there were no plans that had come before the commission. It wasn't true. We, and so we, as a city, ended up uh, having to put out some statements and develop messaging to very specific constituencies, people who are engaged at the golf course and other city facilities to combat the information that was out there. And so that uh, is sometimes, depending in those cases, the response we were getting from citizens was pretty passionate. We were getting a lot of people who were 
calling, emailing, posting it on social media. And so that the, sort of the fever pitch required us to have our own specific response, almost like a, a mini campaign, if you will. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes hard. The internet goes really fast and people just read headlines. And that's the worst part is that people only read the headlines. Yeah. Right. Yes, that can create a lot of issues as well. We've, we have seen that where uh, the headline itself has it's caused some problems or there's a communication challenge simply because what it implies and having to, to respond to that for sure. And then how do you guys handle, let's say, criticism and strategic changes to the criticism? Because not every criticism is good, but people still have criticisms regardless. Yes, they do. And you see that being an elected official, being in, in local government, that Oftentimes, there's criticism that's coming our way. And there are a couple of things for me, the way I approach it. One, I try not to take any of it personally, to keep in mind that as the office holder, I'm making decisions that affect people's lives, that that just comes with the job, that it's part of it. And people are going to, to express their criticism to government leaders. So that's part of the job. I also, I think that criticism, it's an opportunity to hear from people. And so there, there's sort of two competing things going on for me. On one hand, I like the civic engagement. I like to hear people's thoughts, even if it's critical. And sometimes that criticism can come with, with a lot of intensity and passion. And so just remembering that this is what a democratic society looks like, that there's, and it's a chance to hear from those in our community. I also try to keep in mind that Criticism doesn't always reflect the majority opinion in a community. And it can, sometimes it does, but sometimes it's just the loudest voices. And so trying to balance, what do we do with this criticism? Is it something that needs to be addressed in the form of a policy change? Or is it more of a, your criticism is noted, we hear you, but here's why we've decided to take this route and trying to, to balance that. And that, I'm only three months into this job as a commissioner. And so certainly I'm, I'm still learning this dynamic, but as of now, that's how I try to approach it. Mm -hmm. And do you have advice for other elected officials on creating the best crisis plan for them and how to manage a crisis? I think it's important that elected officials are communicating regularly with their constituents before a crisis hits. And that certainly you can start a blog or start a podcast when things are in a crisis or not in an ideal situation, but it's harder to do that. I think it's just, it's much easier if you have an established methods of communication before you get into a crisis, whether you're an elected official or an organization or brand, but, but it is important as elected officials that our, our constituents and our community can hear from us, that they can know what it is that we're doing. I have a blog at chadmcleod.com is where I host blog posts and my city commission podcasts called A View from City Hall. I knew after I was elected, those were tools that I had during the campaign that I wanted to just roll those over as an elected official. And they've been useful because we've had some issues where after a, a vote at City Hall, I could that evening just write about it or podcast about it and be able to explain my perspective. We're, as I mentioned, there's seven of us who are on, on the commission. And so sometimes that, that makes it challenging as, as an elected official to get your own thoughts and your own message out if you have something that's a little bit different maybe than, than the rest of the group. So I think just it's always a good idea to look at how are we communicating with our constituents? How can we improve that and make it stronger so that when we're in a crisis, 
those tools are already there. And then we're just hopefully utilizing them to get our message out. Mm-hmm. And any final thoughts for our listeners? I really appreciate the opportunity, Brett, to chat with you. And I, as I think about the PR world right now and, and a lot that is happening, many people are working remotely and from home and some have found their, themselves out of work. And I, it's a challenging time for all of us, for our, our nation's economy, our, our, our states and communities. But I think there's a lot of great PR work being done right now by communicators who are having to get these messages out very quickly and sometimes shift tactics and and do things a little bit differently or from a different location than maybe they did before. And so I'm I'm just seeing a lot of really great work from PR professionals over the past few weeks. And and that as a PR guy, that that's encouraging. All right. Thank you for joining us, Chad. We really appreciate your insight and your advice to PR professionals. My pleasure, Brett. And Thank you guys for tuning in to PR360. That's the end of the show. So if you guys could, please consider subscribing to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And join us next week as we talk to a great thought leader in the public relations industry. All right, guys, stay safe and have a good week. See you next week. Later.